Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, speaking specifically to mentoring and financial literacy or financial empowerment, um, different from literacy, is that my focus is helping people, uh, particularly people of color and, and very specifically black people, understand that um you know there's traumas that we're navigating especially in this country um and those traumas extend into every aspect of our existence and so when we talk about money and how we manage money or don't manage money and what our beliefs are around um the desire to acquire money and how um a lot of times we i talk about self-fulfilling prophecies in two ways i say Um, either we don't have a strong enough belief in our own ability. And so regardless of what everybody around us is saying about how great we are, we are always going to get in our own way because of what we believe about ourselves. And two, um, the media depiction of what um, is considered successful for a black person. When you look at, you know, rappers, ballplayers, and what have you, um, regardless of how you know you might be a straight a student you might be a good athlete you might be a good citizen but this media depiction of what black people are or sh- how they should behave mm-hmm. really um carries kind of like the dominant narrative especially when you start interacting with non-black circles and so um you know that self-fulfilling prophecy and that everybody believes something about you and then you eventually just kind of subscribe to that or fall into that Um, is also true and so I think that you know being conscious of that and focusing on that empowerment piece and building ourselves up to a place where we have a limitless belief system and that we believe that we're capable and we deserve it and you know that it's possible and giving relevant examples of these things is important how you did how you did that was the voice of Rakim and as you heard We're talking about financial literacy and financial empowerment. How important is it? How can it affect generations? How do you deal with the generational trauma that has existed in many black communities and other communities of color? And how can you turn that around by reframing what the future is going to be like for you? Really enjoy the episode. This was filmed uh, or shot rather uh, around, I want to say early summer. You know, so I'm, I'm just releasing a lot of these episodes now. But it was right after that, you know, unfortunate incident of, of George Floyd and just the consistent epidemic that was happening of black lives being killed and, and mutilated. And so we came together and we, we, put, we recorded this. And I really hope that you all take 
what the big picture of what he's saying here is. There is a lot of benefit that can happen from being financially literate, but also financially empowered. And I also love his personal stories of mentorship. So enjoy the episode. Welcome everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads. Today's guest is Rakim Sabri. Now he's a speaker, he's an author, and he is a financial coach. He serves as a financial strategist and coach, choosing to focus on accountability and mindset over product picking and investment. He's also a two-time author, right? Mentorship, the playbook. Mentorship, the playbook, and financially irresponsible, which addresses his areas of passion, mentorship, and financial literacy. We'll dive into that later in the interview. And as a speaker, he's graced the stages all over the United States, stages like classrooms, workspaces, and boardrooms, even serving on panels while delivering workshops and seminars and keynotes. He's a proud TEDx speaker. We're going to talk about his TEDx talk as well. But you get the point. He's a multifaceted individual who uses his voice in multiple ways. And he has quite the story. Welcome to the show, Rakim. Thank you. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. So tell us, how did it get started for you? I mean, you know, I, I, when I have guests on the show, my favorite thing is to dive into the, the, the seeds that were planted in their heads before they got to where they got to. So what was it like for young Rakim, uh, you know? Growing up, and how did how did you know that you were going to be this um, individual who was such a voice for his audience? I didn't. Um, I, <laughs> Young Rakim was heavily influenced by um, my grandfather, who was a strong advocate for um, empowering black people. Um, he had this practice of regularly asking me, uh, he used this analogy of sneezing. And he said, how many people's faces did you sneeze in today? And when he talked about sneezing, he was talking about spreading the germs of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, there was a lot poured into me and my siblings in terms of just things that we didn't even really appreciate at that age. But, um, you know, now looking at life from the perspective of a 30 year old and seeing everything that, you know, he kind of prepared us for come to fruition. Um, there's a lot of sneezing going on. Um, so I think he he knew where he wanted to see us grow and me in particular. Um, but I've never viewed myself as being kind of like the face of anything. Um, I definitely consider myself to be a leader. But I think uh, my leadership style is more behind the scenes until there is an absence of leadership. Yeah. And that I feel very comfortable kind of like, okay, there's a problem here. I need to take the reins. I need to make some noise. And, um, and that's kind of where I've settled as of late. Well, if you're more behind the scenes and you are also an advocate for black folks, what has the last two months been like for you? Uh, definitely not behind the scenes. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. For one, um, it wasn't a shock to me in the way that I think it was for a lot of my peers and colleagues in that I was never under the impression that, you know, racism just kind of vanished. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that was, doing large parts of, you know, the way that I was raised, my, my grandfather, my parents, like we talked about these things um, growing up. And so 
I think I'm in a, a interesting position in that, yes, I'm impacted emotionally, certainly by what's going on, but I can articulate myself separate from that emotion. Whereas I think a lot of other people are still having to navigate those feelings of shock and the emotions associated in that they either don't want to have the conversation or when they do have the conversation, it comes off as very threatening or very violent or very uh, aggressive, especially to um, non-Black allies. And so I have been very active in having these conversations and talking about what the experience can look like from the perspective of if a Black person, if you, if you approach a Black person and they don't want to talk, be okay with that. But if you approach a Black person and they do want to talk, then listen to them. And um, I think that providing that perspective has been um, definitely a huge benefit, especially in the workplace. Um, But outside of that, being able to um, really kind of check on other black people who are who are impacted. Right. Being able to say, you know, I know what you're going through. You may not have the words to express your feelings right now. Um, I just want to check on you. I want to encourage you. I feel what you're feeling. But being able to talk from a place detached from that emotion, I think um, it, it does a lot of de-escalating. Yeah, it's that ability to be humble enough to to listen, but also humble enough to accept that uh, your not your needs for an immediate response, uh, you know, might not be met as well. And and I think when you have a racial dialogue. Something that I've noticed, at least in the last couple of months, and I've noticed this as, as well growing up, uh, you know, multiple parts of the world, is people have uh, a very uncomfortable feeling accepting that they are complicit in a system that is oppressing others because they take it personal. They, they, yeah, they think it's, uh, it's all of a sudden indicative of, of how bad of a person they are. And, and I, you know, I've been saying over the last month and reminding people that you know, you don't you don't have to be a a bad person to be, you know, complicit in a bad system, right? So if if you're aware of it, just think of something else other than yourself. Think of <laughs> your system and how it affects multiple people, and use that shame as a catalyst and not something that paralyzes you. Right? People will be like, oh, I can't believe this happened to me. And so, interestingly enough, in the spaces you participate in, with speaking, with writing, and you know, even mentoring. I'm, I'm sure that you see a lot of these type of emotions where people have used shame to define their whole selves and say that that means that they are not worthy or they're not the right messenger. What do you say when you come across uh, people using shame to paralyze them as opposed to uh, fuel them to solve a problem? That's a good question. And, you know, actually, that's an environment or atmosphere rather that I spend the majority of my time, um, you know, speaking specifically to mentoring and financial literacy or financial empowerment, um, different from literacy, is that my focus is helping people, uh, particularly people of color and and very specifically Black people, understand that, um, you know, there's traumas that we're navigating, especially in this country, um, and those traumas extend into every aspect of our existence. And so when we talk about money and how we manage money or don't manage money and what our beliefs are around um, the desire to acquire money and how um, a lot of times we, I talk about self-fulfilling prophecies in two ways. I say 
um, either we don't have a strong enough belief in our own ability. And so regardless of what everybody around us is saying about how great we are, we are always going to get in our own way because of what we believe about ourselves. And two, um, the media depiction of what um, is considered successful for a black person. When you look at you know rappers, ball players, and what have you, um, regardless of how you know you might be a straight A student, you might be a good athlete, you might be a good citizen, but this media depiction of what black people are or sh- how they should behave mm. really um, carries kind of like the dominant narrative, especially when you start interacting with non-black circles. And so, um, you know, that self-fulfilling prophecy and that everybody believes something about you and then you eventually just kind of subscribe to that or fall into that um, is also true. And so I think that, you know, being conscious of that and focusing on that empowerment piece and building ourselves up to a place where we have a limitless belief system and that we believe that we're capable and we deserve it and, you know, that it's possible and giving relevant examples of these things is important. Um, th- that's kind of like the whole foundation of, of what I'm about. And, um, and I think that, you know, they go hand in hand, financial empowerment and mentoring, because, you know, nobody does it by themselves. And my mission, my hope, is that through the lens of my experience and, you know, my very limited experience, that other people can see success in me but also see the success in them or see themselves in me rather in that they're like, oh, well, he did it. And, you know, he's 30 years old or he did this before 30. I can do it. And um, and I've had relative success with that. But it's, you know, the more people that find out is obviously the better. Of course. Yeah. And, and we need to tell more of these stories. You said something, though, that, that I don't know a lot of people know. Uh, the difference between, uh, you said financial literacy and financial empowerment are different. Could you elaborate? Absolutely. I think, you know, it's one thing to, to, to know or be familiar with terms, uh, processes, products, um, even strategies in terms of managing your money. It's another thing to believe that you are capable or for you to feel um, empowered enough to execute on those things. And so where I think a lot of um, financial educators focus their attention is on the literacy piece because, um, you know, when you look at statistics, void of, you know, those, you know, the three-dimensional um, aspect of, you know, race and um, other variables, we're looking at a gap, a wealth gap that, um, that if you take out the if you take out the other variables, it's like okay, well, how do we solve this wealth gap? Well, we just need to uh, educate more people on on how to manage their money, and that's not necessarily true. I think there are a lot of financially savvy poor people, um, but I think really the barrier to their success is their mindset, um, and and not just their mindset, right? Because we know that there's issues with wages, there, there there's issues with um institutional racism that prevents the progression through um through different structures but i think that when we start to address mindset and we address empowerment and we address um how do i take myself from this situation to to you know point b and outside of the mechanics of managing money that that's really where a lot of growth will occur um i talk about growing up 
and um, being conscious of the fact that we had Section 8 housing, that we had food stamps, and that there was a period of time in my life where that was something that I aspired for, not because it was something that was taught to me, but because it was something that I saw. And so when I start talking about these things, my parents, you know, all these years later are like, you know, we never taught you that. Like, you know, where did that come from? And I was like, that, that's what I saw. That's, you know, that's, I, I saw you guys were doing it. So I was just like, that's what is, that's what makes sense. That's what's normal. And um, my parents were young parents, 17, 18 years old when I was born. So, you know, they had to navigate through um, different ways to support, you know, three different children by the time they were 30. Right. And um, and so their reality is very different than what my reality is today at 30. I'm saying, I have no children. And <laughs> um, and just kind of being able to look at it through the lens of that perspective and also you know, talking about what empowerment looks like to me and that I've grown and that I didn't, you know, at that particular point in time in my life, 15, 16, didn't think it was possible for me to own property um, before 30, certainly. And then getting out of that environment and surrounding myself with others who had done it, I was like, well, wait a second, like, I want a house too. You know, I want great credit. I want, you know, to plan for retirement and those kind of things. So um, that's where the empowerment piece came in. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, you, you, you know, we follow each other on social media. And last month, the audience has known, because I, I put it on the podcast as well, has seen me go through. 30 days of, of talking about bias, but the second week was really about systems. And I, I went through housing, education, healthcare, and, and every one of these things. And throughout history, we've seen system, you know, system systemically how uh, black and brown folks, especially black folks have been, and even First Nation people, I mean, they, they were the original people that this, the lands were stolen from, how they've been taken, right? Their, their power their power to economic, economic access rather has been, stripped away for them and 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 when there were thriving moments of the you know economy you can think about Tulsa uh, or, or or you know Black Wall Street bam burned and, and all these things that idea of of taking away your economic power I think is, is something that a lot of oppressors understand is a means for growth and and, and mindset shift and I, and I love that you are reminding people that hey it's not just about understanding this. It's about, about knowing that you deserve this and you can grow more. And uh, it's also another reminder, though, that as we approach systemic racism, that understanding that it's, it's more than just your Instagram posts. It's about creating opportunities that build, you know, systemic, economic, generational wealth and, and, and making sure you're not contributing to that cycle of... of um, I guess, uh, perpetuation of, of stereotypes, because if you continue to put people in the neighborhood that you systemically disenfranchise them for, you, it, none of your Instagram posts are going to work until you actually work to make sure the system actually gives people access to see more. So I, I think it's something people to be aware of, because I think people, when they hear reparations, they think, whoa, you want a free handout? Or you, you, you know, you already, right. <laughs> right. but they don't understand the context of it. So I, I love that you, that you said that. Yeah, I um, reparations is a hot topic, and um, it's a hot topic in really kind of every sphere, right? That I exist, whether we're talking about financial empowerment or we're talking about race, and you know, just the black experience. 
and I've heard really different, um, interesting creative proposals for what reparations could look like outside of just um, an allocation of one large lump sum. Um, and, and both sides really of the coin too, I've heard, um, you know, black people should not have to pay taxes for X number of time. Black people's student loan debt should be, you know, wiped away because, you know, the lack of opportunity for a certain amount of time. Of course, the um, the monetary uh, disbursements and um, and they're all interesting to me because when I think about mindset and the role that mindset plays in all of this, if uh, I think a lot of black people, because of the traumas that we are navigating from in this country, years and years and years and years of uh, systemic abuse. Um, if we were to get that lump sum, I heard an argument that we would just turn around and give it right back. And that's not something that I can argue with because I think, you know, where we place our value financially, um, or rather where we place our self-esteem backed by our financials and material things like, you know, cars and clothes and um, jewelry and, you know, partying and those kind of things, um, you know, have to address a lot of um, what we are compensating for and, and maybe in some instances overcompensating for, but also what we are using as coping mechanisms to uh, supplement what our existence looks, existence looks like in this country. And so, um, you know, as a coping mechanism, you might go out and buy five cars with that money. You might go out and you know, get all of the designer clothes and, you know, wealth building is not going to be at the forefront of your conversation. You might hear people, and I've asked this question, what would you do with that money? You might hear people say, oh, uh, I would take a portion of it and invest it. I would take a portion of it and buy real estate. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you know about investing? What do you know about buying real estate? Because all those things sound good. They sound like things that you're supposed to do, but there's not an active study behind what the implementation of that looks like. And if you go the route of contacting a professional and say, you know what, manage all of this for me. Well, now you have, uh, you run the risk of being taken advantage of by that professional. Mm. And so um, as a part of the empowerment piece tied into financial literacy, I'm a huge advocate for um, both using professionals as a part of your team, but also having the um, initiative and awareness to kind of understand what's happening with your money and understand how you're managing your money, at least have a very basic understanding of what, you know, these building blocks to wealth look like. Yeah, yeah. I just thought of a tweet that I, as you were talking, achieving generational wealth involves dealing with generational trauma. Absolutely. That's what I'm taking from what you're saying, at least. I don't know if that's what you're saying, but... I mean, yeah, that's, that's definitely a big part of it. I just, you know, when we look at statistics around, you know, people winning the lottery and how quickly they lose that money, you know, that's because a mindset shift hasn't occurred. They're still thinking at a higher uh, level of income. And so, of course, they're going to go and they're going to spend that money with you. Um, really embrace kind of a wealth building mentality or modality to life. You know, how you move with your money changes. And that is not something that you have to wait for this large lump sum of money to show up to, um, to implement. That's something that you can do today and make conscious choices today that will ultimately have an impact 
on what wealth building looks like for you in the future. And so, you know, when we talk about financial education, um, that's what that mission is. But before we can even get to that, like you said, we have to pull back the layers of trauma and, you know, you know, quote unquote, generational curses that um, that we're navigating to, to even get to, you know, what that clean slate looks like. I got to ask you this uh, about uh, trauma, because this is a topic that I, I very familiar with <laughs> on a generation level, on a personal level. But what do you do for yourself in terms of self-care and mental health? Uh, I do a couple of things. So I um I was raised with exposure to like the Eastern um, meditation systems, and you know I practice kung fu, um, breathing exercises. I read, um, but I'm also conscious of, and this is advice that I've been giving over the last couple of months: um, inputs and outputs. Being conscious of what you're feeding yourself, and then you know what you're contributing to in terms of conversation. So I don't watch television. I think that that, you know, kind of further irritates the trauma or or it puts you in a in a place where um you're just numb. Mm. Television kind of like numbs you to what's happening in the world, especially like reality TV and those kinds of things. Um I will watch Netflix. I'll watch certain shows um and I've definitely been guilty of binge watching. So I won't pretend that, you know, there's no consumption of content happening but um i'm very conscious of what i allow myself to ingest and then certainly what kind of energy i expend especially on social media around certain conversations um and i can give you an example uh, a couple of days ago i saw a post that somebody shared on facebook that really irritated me um and i was just like i started to write a message in response to it and i realized that this message was going to turn into a paragraph and that this paragraph was likely going to elicit a response that I was going to have to respond to. And so in understanding what this progression was going to look like, I said, you know what? I'm just not going to say anything. Mm. And that was me protecting myself, right? Because I knew that, you know, first of all, seeing the post triggered me and made me want to respond. But then also seeing what other people's feedback to my response was going to look like or anticipating that. I knew that I was going to put my, myself in a place where I was going to get more angry and more angry and more angry. And um, it was kind of like taking the bitter medicine because I was upset with myself for not responding. I just felt like I need to say something. I need to address this. But on the other hand, I was just like, well, what is that going to solve? And so, um, you know, taking my own advice and controlling what that output looked like. So that I wasn't putting myself on the front of the street. I have a brand, right, that I'm managing and that I want to make sure is, you know, not um, my narrative is not spun from perspective of me uh, responding angrily on on social. Um, but also, you know, my internal conflict there was, is this me not being a leader? Is this not me speaking out against something that I feel like is inherently inaccurate? And um Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You don't have to be on all the time. My dad's advice to me every single time we talk is like, Rakim, you have to take care of you. You have to take care of you. You have to take care of you. And I know that, you know, by nature, I'm a giver. And I want to um, give and save and contribute and, you know, be a leader and, and shine my light. But I also know that, you know, I have to, I have to recoup. I have to, you know, recharge my energy. So um, there's that. There's the meditation, like I said, and, and, you know, the breathing exercises. There is strategic isolation. So sometimes I just don't feel like interacting with people. Um, and then there's the opposite. There is, you know, injecting myself into an environment that is full of encouragement, full of love, full of acknowledgement, uh, where we don't necessarily have to agree, but I understand that you appreciate me and I appreciate you. And that helps me to kind of build myself up as well. Um, I have pursued, but have not executed on the, on, on that, um, on that endeavor of therapy, um, just because I think everybody should, first of all, become destigmatize what, uh, mental health and, and seeking help from a mental health professional looks like. Um, because there is, there's just so many traumas that we don't even realize we experience through our lives and, and, and black men in particular. Um, and at 30 years old, I mean, I talk to my dad every time I have a birthday, I talk to my dad about, you know, where he was when he was my age. And he says, you know, I'm just so grateful that you are at 30 because I didn't think that I was going to see 30. So for me, and this is my dad speaking for him to, you know, see me at 30 is just like mind blowing to him. And I said, you know, I've never had that thought. I've never thought that I was not going to make it to, you know, 25 to 30 to 50 like I have planned on living out a full life and he's like well then you know that's a generational curse broken there but there's trauma in that you know that in that conversation there's um there's pain in that conversation like he he thought that his life would have been over well before this point um and then that kind of speaks to what our relationship looks like so I mean I, I think there's so much that has to be unpacked um, as a people, um, in terms of not only the traumas that we face in our current lifetime, but on the inherited traumas that we um, that we have through the previous generation. First of all, I agree. I talk about this all the time. Um, I think generational trauma is, is is swept under the rug, especially in in our community. Now, I'm, I come at it from the Nigerian perspective, and I go to therapy. I go to therapy every week, but it's not. It's so frowned upon. I mean, it's not even. <laughs> hidden just the, the stigma is not it's not like a, a secret stigma it's like no that's right. that, you know that's an american thing that, that's how at least nigerians would say this uh some nigerians and uh, but you're right i mean i i think a big part of this you know even with self with empowerment has to do with self-awareness and we just like if, if you're a consultant you go into a company you have to assess the company first to figure out the gaps you need to understand yourself to understand where there's room for growth, but also what your triggers are, why those are your triggers. And then, you know, 
what your limited beliefs are, your limiting beliefs are rather. Because if you if you have an awareness of that, you can either create an environment that protects you or challenges you appropriately, right? You know, put yourself in that place where you can actually work through that discomfort. And uh, sometimes as people, not even just black folks, people in general, we, we like the idea of not seeming like we're wrong or, or quote unquote weak, which is a very problematic thing because what we've equated to weakness is actually a necessary ingredient for growth, right? It's that dealing with the pain, looking at the problem and may, may ensuring that failures and that it's going to continuously happen while we stick through that or persevere through that. So it's, I could go on. That's like another different episode, but it's, uh, <laughs> I love that you're bringing that up because it does play a role in every single thing that we do, whether it's building wealth, being a better father, better friend, better partner, you know, whatever we want to do, better business. We have to deal with many things internally that many of us brush aside. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So no TV for you. Uh, <laughs> what do you, what do you normally do for fun then? Um, you know, believe it or not, I like, I'm a workaholic, so I'm constantly working on something like that's fun for me. And, and fortunately the work that I do is a lot of, um, pouring into other people. So I, that's a passion of mine. That's, um, that's something that like really satisfies me. So when I'm talking to, so I've, uh, variety of different mentees that I address and at different ages and um I have a nonprofit that I co-founded so I work on that um managing you know what is my personal brand in the world of social so um trying to get the attention of publications sharing my content through the various socials um really like my goal is to be recognized as a thought leader and in this journey, it's been uh, a journey of self-discovery too. Whereas I started off, um, I wanted to be a speaker and I did not want to talk about money at all. Like I, I did not want that to be the thing that I'm known for because my day job had been in banking for so many years. I was just like, okay, so I'm dealing with this at work and then I have to come home and deal with it. Mm. Um, but then I realized that there was a need there and that I can incorporate my passion around financial education for me and share that with other people who weren't um, privy to kind of some of the things that I had either encountered through the work that I do or learned through my own independent um, studies. And so uh, then I became, I, I wrote a book before I started speaking, that was the mentorship book. I wanted to spend a lot of time on mentoring. I wrote the second book last year, um, so exactly a year later on the um, financial empowerment and it just like took off like people were hungry for that and i realized okay you know i need to you know sit here for a little while um but then i thought okay so like you said doing this assessment what's my competition look like who else is out there talking about this what are they talking about what's working for them what's not working for them where is there a need that i can fill and for one i don't think that there um could ever be enough advocates black advocates for financial education within our community because it's something that i think we need to be force-fed to an extent um there's just there's a huge wealth gap but also in that discovery journey realizing that a lot of people are either talking about their journey from the perspective of how they built wealth or how they're in the process of building wealth but um i don't want to say regurgitating um but 
for lack of a better word, reiterating the point of, um, you know, the basics of financial literacy, right? You save, you invest, you budget, you, you, you live under your means, those kind of things, multiple streams of income, pay yourself first. And so we all kind of echo that sentiment, but I realized where the gap was and what we talk about is that we're not talking about or acknowledging the Black experience. We're not talking about the empowerment piece. And so I said, oh, this is an opportunity for me to grow and thrive in this space. And you look at um, some of the other financial gurus who are not Black and what they talk about and what they say to their audiences and how um, a lot of times we buy into their audiences because we don't have other viable examples or of other publicized examples. And so um, that self-discovery was like, a light bulb going off. It's like, okay, cool. Like, I can sit in this space. I don't have to really compete with anybody else. Uh, rather, focus on the collaboration piece. How do I address financial empowerment and then connect people who are interested um, to other individuals who meet whatever the specific discipline they want to um, pursue, whether that be real estate investing, investing in the stock market, cryptos, um, Forex, credit, whatever. Yeah. Um, so that takes a lot of time. Uh, I spend, you know, a lot of my free time working on building myself, my brands, um, the businesses, the business aspects of those brands. And, um, you know, I do, like I said, occasionally catch a Netflix show or something like that. <laughs> this guy is making us feel bad about our... <laughs> no, I love it. I love that. I love it, by the way. Uh, okay, but there are a few things I want to unpack. Uh, okay, you said a lot there with, with you know the typical narrative with financial literacy is you know you save, you invest, you build multiple streams of income. Right now, in this COVID nineteen world, what would you advise people to do? Because some people are, are wondering about should I have a nest egg or should I even invest now in the down market or should I? you know, put it on pause, what would you say? Um, I wouldn't advise, but I would tell people what it is that I've done. Um, and, and I've definitely executed on everything that I've talked about. So looking for additional streams of income. My job was not interrupted by COVID. I was able to work remotely, fortunately. So um, I did not experience a stop in my um, income. But I did worry that that might happen. And so rather than be reactionary, I decided to be proactive in um, seeking opportunity outside of what is my regular income to, to draw additional income. And you have more time, right? Because you're home, can't go anywhere, can't do anything. Um, but my advice to people really kind of focuses on education, like build a skill, an in-demand skill, right. and, um, and, and, and you know grow that. So I... I'm not surprised um, about, you know, growing as a writer because I wrote two books, but there's a difference between sitting down and writing a, a book than contributing to a publication. And so developing a skill around, you know, first of all, how do you pitch yourself to a publication? But then, uh, you know, how do you write, get your point across in a very limited amount of words, right? Five to... 800 words, I think is about average. And, um, and, and, and really kind of 
like deliver your point. Beyond that, I, I continue to invest. Um, I wouldn't tell anybody to not continue to invest. The markets are very volatile right now. Um, so you're seeing a lot of highs and a lot of lows. And this is like a field day for, for people who really kind of understand the stock market. They're like, oh, you know, these stocks are on sale. Let's buy, let's buy, let's buy, let's buy. <laughs> Um, but there are people who are trying to get into like day trading and those kind of things. And, and that's dangerous because when you um, enter into that like world and you don't really understand um, just kind of the whole landscape, like you're just looking at this fragmented uh, moment in time and you're trying to time the market and chase, you know, these gains and lock them in. Now, I just I don't personally have the time to do that. But, um, you know, Warren Buffett frequently talks about how. You know, you're you're not going to beat the market as an individual stock picker. You have to be an extraordinary investor to do that. And um, I think a lot of people, as they become more aware and as access to investing in the stock market becomes um, easier through apps like Cash App and Robinhood. And, you know, just there's so much out there. People are like, oh, well, you know, investing equals making money. Let me just throw my money in here without doing it from a place of education or being informed and you know they're becoming disenfranchised with the process because they're losing money or they're like on this on this run right now right where they're making a lot of money and they're like this is great this is great but they are not understanding what the downside looks like and that the downside is a part of this process so um education again is something that i would underscore definitely in this time if there's already an investing practice that was um in place I would encourage it if, you know, obviously all of the other basic necessities are covered. So like you have a place to live, you have a place to, you have things to eat, you know, those kind of things. Um, and then, yeah, focusing on limiting excess. So you have a subscription to Netflix and Hulu and Apple TV and this, like, do you need all of those things? Um, so just, you know, kind of taking inventory of, of what, like I said, the outputs look like and then what the inputs look like. So a lot of what I talk about really kind of transcends just the specific area that I'm focusing on, right? We're talking about mental health, controlling the inputs and outputs. We're talking about, you know, your personal finance, controlling the inputs and the outputs. Um, even, you know, talk about like physical health, right? What you eat <laughs> and what, you know. How what you eat and what you, how you work out in comparison to what you eat, controlling the inputs and the outputs, and um and I think that's really kind of like the key to my success is looking at the world holistically from a spiritual, mental, and physical perspective. These principles will transcend, you know, all of those different iterations of existence, and then um it makes for I think a more well-rounded life experience. Yeah, yeah, these are lifelong. Uh experiences are not destination experiences. And what I mean by that is many people sometimes try to think in a short-term way, like when I get here, I'm done. Or if I get this stock, I'm good. If I get that, I'm good. But if you think of it more as a lifelong uh, you know, practice, it becomes a habit for you because you, you know, you're not trying to you know, <laughs> shortchange yourself and, and you, you are patient. You, you, understand, right. you understand that the process involves some downs and some ups. Um, okay. Well, before we close, I want to talk about the other thing that's very important to you, and I, I think it's very important to people in our community, but also in the world, which is mentorship. And, and I noticed you brought up your dad a lot. You know, you, you say, I talked to my dad, I asked my dad this, my dad said this. Uh, well, how did that play a role in your life personally, and why are you so passionate about it? 
uh, about mentoring or about the relationship? Well, I, I'm seeing it as a sort of mentorship anyway, but I could be wrong. But No, I, you're right. You're right. <laughs> but maybe there's a difference. I mean, it could be wrong, but, but yeah. Um, so when I wrote my first book, um, I talk about mentoring in a little bit of a different way than I think most people uh, talk about it. I talk about mentorship as um, a relationship, any relationship where you allow someone or rather you choose to have someone influence the way that you think, act, behave, et cetera. Um, and so that takes away from kind of like this uh, image of mentorship where you have to be mentored by somebody who is older than you, who's more experienced than you, wiser than you, and really kind of brings mentorship back through the lens of any relationship that you have, right? Your best friend can be a mentor, um, you you could be a mentor to you know an older brother, younger brother, whoever. And when you look at mentorship from that perspective, um, then you can you can really like get into the weeds of how is the relationship, or rather, how are the relationships that I keep influencing me? Period. To move forward, to to stay stagnant, um, you know, and then how do I control that? So again, going back to the inputs and outputs. So that lesson um, I've most frequently um, kind of addressed with younger people because I want young people to embrace the concept of mentorship. I want them to execute on mentoring and I want them to understand the impact of the relationships that they keep. However, um, in addition to that, my book has also been used to kind of talk about what does um, situational leadership look like, right? And that there's not a cookie cutter approach to dealing with people. Everybody's different. And so of course you have to adjust you to, um, to get the maximum benefit out of whoever it is that you're leading. Um, and so, you know, we talked about leadership too in the beginning of this conversation where, um, you know, there's different styles of leadership. There's a very kind of upfront, um, you know, face of leadership. There's a behind the scenes leadership. Um, I think there is a cooperative leadership where you're working with somebody else in, in a leadership capacity. Uh, and so I think, you know, we can spend forever talking about the different kinds of leaders out there. But um, one of the lessons that I learned very early was that sometimes the best way to lead is to follow. And, um, and so I kind of outlined that experience. And, and those experiences, um, I think, the time frame that I am navigating in my book, which is kind of like part memoir, is from about the ages of 12 through maybe 26. Um, and, and the different relationships that I've had and how those relationships have impacted me to, um, to be a better mentor, a better friend, a better person in general. Um, and so, of course, uh, in the beginning of my book, I talk about my father and my grandfather, and I talk about, you know, the the beginning of our relationship and uh, rather the beginning of my, I guess, consciousness of our relationship. My dad was a young dad. My grandfather was a young grandfather. They weren't um, overly affectionate. Um, it was very like a militant kind of background, very like disciplined. Yes, sir. No, sir. You do something wrong. You do push ups. Um, there wasn't an acknowledgement of, of feeling. And so I challenge in my first chapter, you know, how do we define masculinity and um, or how do we redefine masculinity and what does that look like? And that can we share um, compassion, 
compassionate mentor- mentorship is a term that I use. Can we share compassion in letting our mentees know as men um, that we care about them, that we acknowledge them, not for, you know, the transactional nature of our relationship, but I see you as a whole person and all of your needs and wh- where it is that you're trying to go. I've been where you are. Or as a mentee, I see you in terms and in, in everything that you've accomplished. I want to experience that. I want to be influential. I want to be liked. I want to lead. I want people to come to me for advice and, and you know, all of those dynamics. And so it speaks in two voices. Um, it speaks as, as a mentor, but it speaks as a mentee. And, and having experienced both of those roles, um, I can kind of give a voice to both to both um, roles in that as a mentor, you might feel burdened to come up with the content and really kind of lead and guide the relationship. And you know, you don't know what your mentee is, is is liking or not liking, or you know, are they following? But as a mentee, you kind of feel like you have to go along with the mentor and like, okay, he's telling me to do this or that I should do this. And you know, I have I have various mentors through, you know, different avenues of life. And I, I'm not gonna sit here and pretend that every mentor that every advice that a mentor has given me, I've accepted. You know, some advice that mentors are giving me, I'm like, you know what? Like, I appreciate that feedback, but I'm not going to execute on that. I don't agree with that. And so feeling empowered to say that and still maintain the relationship and not um, being offended or being afraid to express that is important. Um, As I've grown over, you know, the period of my life and, and my father obviously has grown with me, our relationship has changed. Um, where what we talk about is different, how we talk to each other is different. Um, his approach to fathering is different these days than it was when you know he was 17 to 25. And so, and then of course, my grandfather really kind of laying the groundwork for what you know I ultimately ended up becoming, but but what our relationship looked like. And you know, I'm very proud of our name, um, in, in terms of you know, just kind of the generational succession of what we've been able to accomplish in, in line with what my grandfather's vision was. And um, I, I think, like you said, it all kind of jives. Um, you know, I, I, I have this quote that I like to recite to people. Uh, a wise man accepts counsel but makes his own decision. And, um, you know, I, I have, I have a, a, a nice group of people that I can go to for counsel, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's on me to either execute on, choose to accept, or choose to reject what it is that's being given to me. Team Sabree, ladies and gentlemen. So where can people find your work and what you're up to? Uh, so my website is my name. Actually, everything is my name. So social media, any social media that I'm at, it's Rakim Sabree, at Rakim Sabree. So that's R-A-H-K-I-M. S A B R E E. And yeah. then my website is my name, rockhamsabree.com. Make sure to put that in the show notes for sure, because I, I think you do have a lot of interesting things to say. And I think the, you know, I believe that the perspective that you have to offer uh, is powerful. And, and you do it with, uh, you know, interesting, cool bravado. That's <laughs> 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 it. And, and you, you, have, you have the tone, but it, it, it's, uh, it's very logical and uh, it's very easy to follow so uh, appreciate that about you and uh yeah looking forward to, to more people uh you know keeping what you have to say so 
Thank you so much. I have one question, though. This is the last question I always ask my guests. My mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So how do you, Rakim, use your difference to make a difference? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, and I'll try not to be long-winded in my answer. <laughs> I think um, the difference between me and a lot of my peers is in that I have never not believed myself capable of doing something. Um, and that comes from the foundation that I was provided and what was poured into me from my grandfather on down. Um, and so how I'm using that to make a difference is that I'm sharing that with other people. Um, all the time, as often as I can, and that, you know, some people might view me through the lens of being arrogant um, or overconfident. Some people might view me through the lens of being lucky, right? Um, and some people might acknowledge that I've been very strategic about my path. But I think that, you know, all of those answers are accurate depending on what vantage point you're standing from, because I have this belief in myself and in my ability that is um, unshakable. And I want other people to have that belief in themselves as well. Because I just think as um, people in general, well, not just black people, but people as a whole, if you have that belief that you can do anything and you collaborate with somebody else who has that belief, that that's how movements are started. And that you know those movements are going to change the world. Yeah. Unashamed in his belief in himself. Thank you so much, Nubridia. <laughs> I appreciate that, and I think that's something that's necessary. It's a necessary ingredient to success. You have to see it to achieve it. So, well, thank you so much for coming on the show, sir. Thank you. <laughs> the pleasure is mine. And ladies, gentlemen, and gender non-binary individuals, till next time, it gives you a difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.